Uh, I'm Mick, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're dropping in halfway through the chapter. This is the chapter where Paul... Uh, we're looking at chapter 15 uh, from verse 35. We're dropping in halfway through this chapter where Paul has been talking about uh, Christ rising from the dead and the resurrection of those who believe in him rising from the dead. And so chapter 15 from verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. Fish, another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon, another. And the stars, another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, life, became a living being. The last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now we've opened the last two weeks in this series, Imagining the Past. I wanted to change things up this week, so I want to invite you instead to imagine the future. Uh, turns out George Jetson was born last week. So the future is closer than you think. 
Some of you are sitting here wondering who George Jetson is. He's a cartoon character from the past who lived in the future. Uh, it was a future with flying cars and tech like smartwatches, Zoom calls, video chats, robot vacuums, touchscreen remotes for controlling your smart house. See, they predicted some things, right, the Jetsons? But there are some more uh, serious predictions about the future that are going to be landing soon too from the past. In 1930, the economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that by 2030, it's in eight years' time, quality of life would have improved between four and eight times and we'd just be working a 15-hour work week. Eight years away. Uh, he said we'd only be working that, we could get away with not working at all, but we'd only be working that because the old Adam in us, the, the worker in the garden, would be too hard to shake. In 2015, there was an article uh, published by The Atlantic imagining how automation and smart computers might deliver this future, a world without work. It's a serious conversation people are having about what technology might enable us to do. Uh, 2016, we're getting closer to the present, 2016 World Economic Forum paper predicted what computers will be able to do by 2030. Their tech specialist, Justine Castle, says... Computers will keep spreading, not just in our devices and in and our appliances, but by 2030, we'll see biological computing, not just seeing our bodies as computers and our DNA-like software, but merging our biological computers with real ones. We'll see that happening in ways that start delivering results. We'll have, she thinks, smart, powerful computers everywhere that will link us to the machine so that ads can respond in real time to our emotions while we look at them. Doesn't that sound great? Now, robots will be making other robots as we become like robots. What a future. What a time to be alive. 2030. Uh, more present future predictions, so coming from around now, come from organisations like Humanity Plus. Uh, they're attempting to elevate the human condition using science and technology to support a better future. That's the tagline down here. There are a bunch of organisations like them working with genetic engineering and robotics and artificial intelligence and nanotechnology. That's GRAIN, an acronym, it's a clever acronym. Uh, they want to hack the human using machines or merging us with machines to make us more than human. Humanity Plus is what's called a transhumanist organisation. It's part of a movement that wants to use technology to eliminate ageing, and to enhance our intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. Wants to get rid of death. Wants to use technology to overcome fundamental human limitations. There's an Aussie academic working on this stuff. Her name's Dr. Elise Bohan. She wrote a book called Future Superhuman, Unpacking Transhumanism. She calls it a project of technological transcendence. That's a religious word. A technological transcendence aiming to make us more than human. Uh, there's a lady, Dr. Natasha Vita Moore, who's been working on articulating a manifesto for transhumanism since 1983. She sees aging as a disease and the way to treat that disease being to augment and enhance our bodies and brains. And we'll be able to cure the disease of aging she says. In her manifesto, she declares our individual right to genetic liberty, 
to be free to govern our own bodies because we should own our own bodies. We should be free from the constraints of disease and death to shape who we are and live our own lives. And this is a kind of culmination of the way of thinking we've been unpacking over the last two weeks. This idea is built again on the idea that we create ourselves, that we are the architects of our existence, the author of our own lives, that our lives should express our values, whether that's in our bodies or not, that we should convey the essence of our beings, challenging all our limits. It's pretty clear in this model that our being is not limited to our body anymore. There's some essential bit of you or me that makes me, me and you, you, that we can even upload into a machine and still exist. And as we take these steps, whatever we do to overcome aging and death and to keep us, us forever, this will spread and we'll become participants in our own evolution. She says, we will be shaping the image of whom we are becoming. We'll be gods. We'll be the images of our gods. Our gods will be ourselves. We'll be imagining ourselves and using technology to craft the self we want to be. And we'll stop seeing our breaking, dying bodies as gifts from God. We'll see them as limited things to overcome as we become gods for ourselves. Now, this isn't just a weird sci-fi tech thing at the fringes there. Uh, You might not have encountered this thinking. It might not be in your head, but we're living in a world shaped by this technology already and the pursuit of this technology. And it's not just in the tech world that this is happening. It's also happening in high fashion. So it'll be in Kmart in a few years. Uh, This Gucci fashion show in 2018 was called a parable about the possibility of being liberated from the confines of the natural condition we're born into. It was a show called Cyborg. It was a show celebrating the idea that our identity is liquid, it's in the promo material for it, and we can hack it with technology and with choosing the clothes we wear to present ourselves to the world. The show was set in a kind of apocalyptic surgery where transhuman creatures walked the runway wearing the clothing and tech that displayed a transhuman future. Gucci's creative director, Alessandro Michel, said, his show demonstrates that we're now the Dr. Frankensteins of our own lives. We're putting ourselves together, inventing, assembling, and experimenting with identity as expressed through clothes, at least in this show, which can accompany you while you develop the idea of yourself. He says, we're living in a post-human time already. The future has already arrived, and now we have to decide what we want to be. Now, there's lots that's good about this sort of liberation. Like we saw back in week one, we don't want to be imprisoned in bad and destructive pictures of humanity and the freedom to pursue what's true and good for us as humans and to try it on. Well, that's a good thing. And aging and death are bad things. But this new humanity is also a product of our breakup with God our decision to put ourselves in that driving seat, our need to define ourselves because now we belong to ourselves in a world closed off to God. This is what we get. We become the architects of our destiny and our bodies. See, all our big tech gurus who make the products you love and you've included, incorporated into your lives, they're all working towards some picture of the future that accompanies a picture of what it means to be human. 
Amazon's Jeff Bezos. He's investing in rocket, investing in rockets because his vision is trillions of people colonizing space. His company, Blue Origin, want to open up the limitless resources of space to preserve life on Earth. We can do all that mining stuff that makes pollution off the planet and return to our blue Earth that sustains life, our Blue Origin. But at the same time, Bezos is invested in Altos, a biotechnology company that's fighting aging through cellular rejuvenation. He wants to deal with the aging problem as well, so he can go to space and live forever there. Mark Zuckerberg is investing in virtual reality, the metaverse, so you can pop on one of these headsets and go virtual fishing with family members across the planet or maybe across the galaxy. This virtual reality is what he sees as the next logical step, the next evolution in technology. We've gone from text to photo to video to full immersion in the metaverse. His goal is for virtual reality to feel real so that we'll want to hang out there and maybe one day we'll just plug into virtual reality, digitize our consciousness, escape our bodies and stay there forever or at least until there's a power failure because someone's got to keep those machines running. Elon Musk, he reckons we're already living in that future so no one flicked a switch. Uh, we just can't tell because it's so real. But if we're not, he's invested in breakthrough technology for the brain with his company Neuralink. Uh, maybe that's how you win the simulation game he thinks we're all embedded in. He's developing an injectable mesh you can stick in your skull, it will connect to your brain, and then connect your brain to digital intelligence so that we can control it rather than it controlling us. This is because over time he thinks we'll see a merger of biological intelligence and digital intelligence. I wonder what that means for people driving his cars. There's a technological philosopher, David Porish. He describes this goal underpinning some of this as this attempt to create a magic technology where our brains will merge with cyberspace, where we can live as immortal people who work and play in this new, clean, virtual Eden, where we're all going to flee to when life in the physical world becomes an unlivable eco-disaster. So you've got the planets or the machine. Those are our two options for these guys. In some ways, this sounds like heaven, doesn't it? A new Eden. Uh, but it also sounds like something right out of the matrix. Just with the idea that we might escape our fleshy bodies. They might not need to be plugged in because we can just put our brains into the machine. And heaps of this thinking is actually built on a sort of philosophy that sees our bodies as just a meat sack. A thing that we're born into that we need to overcome in order to push past our meaty limits. There's a guy, a philosopher of robotics behind all of this. His name is Hans Moravec, one of the early thinkers on this stuff. He thinks that we are not our machinery, our bodies. We are the processes at work in our heads. That's, who the, that's the essence of humanity, the processes, our consciousness that makes you you. The rest, he says, is jelly. But is that all our bodies are? meat or jelly or a kind of meat jelly like that canned chicken is that who we are see predicting the future is tricky but our predictions of the future our visions of what's to come are always built from what we think it means to be human 
meat and consciousness or body and soul and where we think God fits in the picture. So in these stories where God's out of the picture, we have to transcend our meat by elevating our soul. And these ideas about generating a new humanity through technology, you might love them, they might be exciting to you, or you might find them absolutely terrifying, or maybe a bit of both. They're ideas that are disconnected from the idea that to be human, to be truly human, is to reflect the image of God. We're left constructing our own image, and at the same time, lots of the desires behind this construction project are actually fundamentally Christian ideas. They're they're Christian heresies rather than secular ones. They're attempts, like in the story of Babel, to step into God's role to bring heaven on earth through our technology. So a world with no more death or ageing or sickness, no more pollution, a world that is good to live in where work is not frustrating, where we're doing that on our terms, using our technology, these pictures of heaven, that's us looking to build heaven on earth, rather than seeing heaven as something built by God for humans along with a new earth and new bodies built by God rather than us. So these pictures of the future are built on these Christian heresies, which we've seen over the last few weeks are often failures to hold furious opposites and hold them furiously. And so here these ideas of the future are built on wrong ideas about what it means to be human, which gets called in fancy terms anthropology, and about the future, which in fancy terms gets called eschatology. These two kind of fields of Christian thinking have gone a bit haywire when you pull God out of the picture. There's a lady named Mary Harrington. She's coined this phrase I like to describe what's going on in this drive to transcend our human limitations, even our bodies using technology. She reflects on the way so many of us in the last couple of years have adopted new technological practices without really thinking about it in these digital spaces, thanks to COVID and lockdowns and Zoom meetings and working from home where you don't need to go into the office and be face-to-face. All of these have made it just a little easier to imagine a self or to imagine others existing without a physical body. When you deal with each other on a screen, it's just pixel to pixel rather than meat jelly to meat jelly. She says this dream of being free from our bodily limitations, it's not new. The idea of bringing our consciousness or our soul away from the body, it's not an internet age invention. It's an expression of what she says is the ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was what happened when uh, the New Testament, when early Greek Christians fused the New Testament with the philosopher Plato. Gnosticism was the idea that the material world and the body were dirty things that we should escape, that we needed to transcend from our limits, our body embodied limits, to a higher spiritual idea via secret knowledge. And so she sees Gnosticism at play in our lives now, in our desires to escape our bodies. In her article, she reflects on the economic inequality that gets revealed in the pandemic, where most of us could escape to safety and work from behind screens, while those at the margins of our society, economically, and particularly migrant workers in Australia, think security guards or aged care workers, they were forced by their circumstances and their lack of stability to take up more risky in-the-flesh shift work. She went back to the idea of the world without work that was 
part of this article. And she talks about a guy back in 2018 named Aaron Bastani, who coined a phrase for this idea that automation would create super abundance, that there'd be this machine-led revolution where we'd all be free from work. He called this fully automated luxury communism. We'd be able to live in community, not worry about property ownership. Robots would serve us our every desire. It'd be just like this scene in Wally. We'd have our personal transportation devices, our screens, things delivered to us in the click of the button. So she reckons our new dream of freedom, it's not just freedom from work, like that vision, but freedom from our bodies. And so she calls it fully automated luxury Gnosticism. We're facing a bunch of new technologies that are geared towards grabbing our attention to addicting us, getting our minds linked with the machines, pulling us away from face-to-face, jelly-to-jelly interactions where machines like drones or robots or maybe a low-paid human controlled by an app will deliver us whatever we want almost immediately. See, that is the world we live in. It's the world of Uber Eats and Amazon. We're already there. And the thing is, you don't need to want to escape your body into a computer to buy this Gnostic vision of the human. Christians have been buying this Gnostic vision of the human for years, this idea that disintegrate us. We have a version of this in the church where we picture heaven as a disembodied liberation of the soul into some cloudy, bodiless heaven. When we think that our bodies aren't fundamentally, fundamentally part of our humanity, that the real us is our soul. That's our inner self. See, some aspects of transhumanism, some of its technologies, they are expressions of something good and true, as we saw last week with making technology. They could be expressions of us co-creating with God, joining with God in the anticipation of the renewal of all things, including our bodies, where we use technology to change our bodies and make them more like the heavenly bodies we read about in 1 Corinthians. Most of us aren't going to blink at the idea about using modern technology to fight cancer or illness. Most of us will go under the surgeon's knife and have bits of our body cut away to preserve our life. That's part of using technology in a good way. The New Testament expects our bodies, our humanity to be transformed. We're not this static thing. We have that as part of our story. And yet some aspects of this transhumanism movement are an idolatrous attempt to rewrite ourselves, to rewrite our bodies, to hack them, to put robotic parts in them, to escape them, to escape creatureliness in our human limits, to become like God on our own steam. And so we have to work out how to hold our creatureliness as one furious truth, our embodied limitations, and that we will be transformed And we are being transformed to be more like God, on the other hand. We have to work out how to hold our creatureliness and our transformation intention as we also hold our spiritual nature, that we have a soul, in tension with our physical nature, that we have a body. And this is tricky. It's tricky in a world where we have to assess what technologies to incorporate into our lives and where often we've incorporated them before we've done the assessment. We have to think about what to do with our bodies that are breaking down, that are dying. What to do to declare that death is the enemy. It requires wisdom and wisdom is keeping these poles live. 
holding both furiously, having our humanity, our body and our soul shaped by the story that we are inhabiting as followers of Jesus. See, our bodies are not simply jelly or meat that we should simply mould as we construct our own, our own identity according to some spiritual or psychological self. It's not that simple. Our bodies are a vocation. Our bodies are a gift from God to be stewarded in our task of bearing his image in the world. The whole act of being an image is tied to our bodies right from the start. How you use your meat, your meat jelly, is an expression of who you are and who you believe God is. In Genesis, God forms a man by forming a body and then he breathes life, the breath of life. In the Greek Old Testament, he breathes the psyche, the word for soul, into the body. The human in Genesis isn't a human without both. Now the fall, it impacts this sin and death and curse and frustration. Our bodies now break and die and we aren't so clearly and neatly realized when it comes to things like biological sex where we're made male and female this frustration it impacts our psychology and our physiology even if these are deeply integrated we get a bit messy a bit broken we die and we're now living in these bodies impacted by the fall and by the curse our bodies and our psyche bodies and souls are deeply integrated they affect each other in ways that you can't just pull them apart now they're so integrated that we see that experiences in the body like trauma impact our well-being our psychology and our physiology then is linked with our psychology but even as all these changes happen as sin and curse and death get written into our being our created vocation remains the same. To receive our bodies as a gift, even with these disconnects, and to carry them in the world in ways that reflect God's breath in us, to reflect his life and love in the world as we inhabit his story. In the gospel, as Paul puts it in Romans, we're recreated when God breathes not just his breath of life into us, but his spirit into our bodies. His spirit now lives, giving life in our mortal bodies. His spirit now lives in us. We're united with Jesus, so his story becomes ours and our story becomes his. The way the Father and the Spirit raised Jesus bodily from death shapes our expectations for our own mortal bodies. This is the story we're living in as we steward our bodies towards this glorious and transcendent life, towards the redemption of our bodies as Paul puts it in Romans 8. We live in a world in bodies that are groaning. We groan, they're frustrated, but we live waiting eagerly for this hope, this hope of redeemed bodies, eagerly and patiently. We patiently wait for this future. See, modern tech-fueled visions of the future are often impatient expressions of the same grasping human impulse that was there in Eden, where we want to become like God without waiting for God to act. We want to become immortal without finding life in God. 
part of being human without being disintegrated is cultivating patience, which might mean embracing our embodied limits and the failures that come with age and disability while waiting to be made whole. Patiently waiting as a testimony to our belief that it is God who will redeem our bodies. It is God who will reintegrate body and soul by his spirit as he transforms us. Now, this redemption of our bodies, it might also come through human partnership with God, through human making of technology. That's part of what it means to be an image bearer, as we saw last week. It might come through expressions of being like God, seeking to love our neighbours. And this is where wisdom and integrity and knowing what our bodies are for and what story we're living in comes in. See, we don't just need to know what our bodies are for. We need to know who our bodies are for. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul said in the chapter we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies are meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Living with this truth will actually deliver the fullest sense of being human and an actual transcendent future for our bodies. Not relying on technology, not seeking a post-human future, but a truly human future belonging to God. This future comes through Jesus by the Spirit as we become united to him and are brought into the life of the God who is love. So our bodies become members of Christ himself. We're not escaping our bodies. It's not our souls that become members of the body of Christ, but ourselves, our body and soul, union with him as we become temples of the Spirit, bought at a price, not our own. And so the implication for us is that we honour God, not just with our inner selves, not just with our souls or our hearts or our minds, but with our bodies. It's funny, isn't it, how much the transhuman hope competes with the Christian hope, that desire for transcendent, immortal humanity and a sense of yourself. You've got to choose between your inner self and becoming the machine or a robot who goes into space with your consciousness in its head or uniting yourself with the God who is love, who invites you into his divine life, which is the life at the heart of reality. See in our passage this morning that Mick read for us, we get this thread that runs from creation through to new creation. And it teaches us about our bodies. Because God gives everything that has a body its own body as he determined it. Our push for self-determination, that's always going to run the risk of us playing God if we aren't asking what God has determined for us first. If we aren't asking about God's view of our bodies and their purpose as essential to our humanity. We can't raise our bodies from death or defeat death. That's God's job in this passage. God's job as the creator and sustainer of life who takes our bodies that are sown perishable in the grave and raises them imperishable in glory and power, not as natural bodies, but spiritual ones. Now, Paul's doing something interesting with these words. Now, he contrasts these two humanities, first from the first man, Adam, contrasts that with the humanity we receive in the last Adam, that's Jesus, who is a life-giving spirit. When he talks about the spiritual and the natural here, 
I think there's actually a theological pun going on. And I checked this with someone who's actually good at Greek yesterday, who's employed at QTC, and so blame them. Uh, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and it kind of has this overlap with the word for soul. They both mean breath, but you've got pneuma and soul, suke, where we get psych from in psychology. He's put this suffix at the end, icon. It's just a way to say of the. So you've got the of the spirit, which we get as spiritual, and then of the suke, which we get as natural, but he smashed that icon on the end. Now, there are other ways you could have written about this, but this word icon, it sounds exactly like the Greek word for image. You have the image of the spirit replacing the image of the suke, the breath. It's this new humanity that comes from receiving God's spirit. And the reason I think he's punning is because just a couple of verses later, he uses the word icon for image. And so there'll be kind of a rhyme in people's heads as he then talks about how we have borne the icon of the earthly man, we've been like Adam, and now we shall bear the icon, the image of the heavenly man. So he uses this same language to talk about moving from being like Adam to being like Jesus. Now there's a weird past and future thing here. We were like Adam. We will be like Jesus. But there's something going on where we're actually becoming by the Spirit and we'll fully become like Jesus when we are resurrected and receive a resurrected body that matches the Spirit at work in us already. We don't have that resurrected body yet. We hope for it, but we do have the Spirit of God living in us, the imperishable Spirit who is taking us to that future. And it's not going to be our clothing choices that liberate us or make us truly human. It'll be God who clothes us, God who changes us, God who rewrites the physical code of our bodies, replacing perishable with imperishable and mortality with immortality to demonstrate that death has been defeated. It has not been defeated by science, by human efforts. It has been swallowed up in victory. The gospel is not a story of technological transcendence, but of divine transcendence that makes us more human. And so pushing for a disembodied future, deciding that your body is not who you are, that our bodies are just meat to be escaped or to be treated as we see fit, that will ultimately disintegrate us because our story and our future is embodied. It's in bodies that go through death and are raised imperishable and it's Jesus, not technology, who gives us this victory over death. See, for now we live in these bodies that perish. These bodies that bit by bit are headed towards the ground will be planted there. But our bodies also house the Spirit who guarantees our resurrected life. That our natural bodies will give way in the resurrection to these spiritual bodies. Immortal bodies that are temples of God's Spirit that reflect His life and will forever. Will reflect His victory over sin and death in Jesus. And so the Spirit guarantees our resurrected life and reassures us of God's love for our bodies and His desire that we might use them, male and female, to represent Him in the world as we get swept up 
into the Trinitarian life of love and engage our bodies, whether in singleness, in marriage, or in the church community, which is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, engage them in the work of living for him. We live in bodies like Adam's that will die, only bodies that are already temples of the Spirit, that will be redeemed and raised as heavenly, so that we now bear the image of the heavenly man in bodies that are dying, and that is a tension that we have to hold furiously. Our bodies are good gifts from God. Even as they age and break and experience the frustration we experience in life outside of Eden, both from the curse and even the frustration of good God-given limits, it's actually a good thing that you can't know everything. It's a good thing that you can't be everywhere. It's a good thing that you are not God. Now, that's the story of Job and God's answer to Job when he asks questions. We have limits. And now I don't want to be ableist here. There's a goodness to our bodies that sustain life and create life and can give and receive love even when we don't see it in our bodies, even when our bodies are broken. There's a goodness reflected in our lives as individuals and in community that isn't tied to our capacity to function or work according to the metrics chosen for us in the world. The goodness of our bodies is connected to the giver and to life together in ways that express his character. Our bodies are good even when they're frustrated and we receive them as good gifts anticipating that they will be made gloriously better, that we will go from good to great. For Paul, this means we in our bodies now are free to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. That's work with an entirely different set of metrics. It's work where we're not looking for a 15-hour work week or robots to do the job for us. But we do this, the work of the Lord, the work of making Jesus known through our bodies as we live as temples of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. It's work that we can do and we know is good and not frustrated because it's work that will last. It's not in vain. Death doesn't have the last word. We're not looking at a post-work future but a vocation to give our bodies to the work of the Lord. In his follow-up letter, Paul talks about how by the Spirit we are being transformed in the image of Jesus. It's a letter to the same church, it's 2 Corinthians, transformed in the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. He says this is happening in our bodies, bodies that are dying and aging, and for Paul are being beaten and flogged and scarred and starting to look more and more like his crucified king. But this transformation comes in part through our embodied work of the Lord, our worship, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, or as he puts it in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, carrying the death of Jesus in our bodies, so that the life of Jesus might be known, made known in our mortal bodies. And this will mean not running from death, not running from suffering. For Paul, it meant being beaten and flogged. And showing what it looked like to trust that God would raise and glorify our bodies. We don't avoid death because we know death leads to resurrection. We give ourselves to God's work and even to sacrifice and death with this hope of resurrection and redemption. Not working to not work or to escape our bodies into machines or make robots that can link with our brains and give us better ads, but being human. And being human means living with our bodies as part of our being, not something to be transcended 
or escaped, but as the part of us or part of us, it's becoming transcendent. And so this is one of those furious opposites for us to hold when imagining a human future. It's one of those things that will hold intention as we figure out where technology will fit in the picture and how we live as creatures who are created with limits. Created with limits, but also created to represent God as we are being glorified by him. As we are being transformed into immortal people waiting for an immortal body because his spirit is at work. The technology will be part of making that work or doing that work for us because it's part of how we work in the world to fight the impact of sin and death and curse while we wait for God to renew all things. But we cannot be swept up in this luxury automated Gnosticism or the furious opposite idea that the body is all we have so we should live well by maximizing our embodied pleasure now, satisfying all our desires. That's what we're going to look at next week. But these are disintegrating forces that pull us apart. Our challenge is to see our bodies as good gifts from God that we're given to inhabit a world and a story as we wait for the renewal of our bodies and the world. Not living towards a world without work. And one of the ways we can value the body is by thinking about our work, how we work differently to those in the world, a world that doesn't necessarily value the body but wants to overcome it. A world that is happy to meet screen to screen rather than meet to meet. A world where bodies are given less dignity than our story teaches us they have. The, the world of automated luxury Gnosticism. See, this will have implications too for those of us who for very, various reasons are inclined to hate our bodies and see them as things to overcome or escape. Your body is a gift from God, not spam, and is to be used in this new sort of work, a work that has dignity because your body has dignity and value. See, Mary Harrington noticed that while the rich disconnect from our bodies via screens, the poor can't, and actually they are the ones who bear the costs of our decisions. She says, no matter the promise of luxury through automation, there'll still be people taking out the bins and stacking the dishes and caring for those who can't care for themselves. And that's what we saw in the pandemic. Those were the workers, the essential workers who had to keep working. Maybe the work of the Lord, testifying to the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus, his embodiment, his embodied love, and the restoration and revolution that he brings through his resurrection. Maybe our testimony to that will be taking up those jobs that testify to our embodiment to care for those taking up those jobs. Maybe you could greet your Garbo with a hot cup of coffee this week as he does the rounds. Notice and thank them. Maybe we should be encouraging our kids to work in these areas because they have dignity, the dignity that comes with a body while the world around them pushes for a post-work, post-body future that marginalizes people who are already marginalized. In the early church, they bore witness to the dignity of the body by conducting funerals and burials for any human. In a world where the rich, only the rich were seen as worth remembering, they had funeral societies that would give you a lavish farewell so that everybody could celebrate you. The Christians would bury everybody. They honoured and buried and gave thanks for the poorest of the poor precisely because our bodies have dignity even in death. 
So when it comes to these plans to elevate the human condition with technology, well, we should tread carefully. We should recognize that sin and curse and death are not the ideal or the future, but it's not idolatry that's going to get us out of it. It's not a technological transcendence that saves us. And, and you might be sitting here this whole talk thinking this is weird and has nothing to do with me. You are not buying into the post-human future, the transhuman thing. This has been a waste of time talking about a bunch of people on their computers. What's this got to do with the real world? Well, this guy, Michael Burdett, he's a theologian who thinks about this post-human stuff. And he says, actually, we're not shaped so much about thinking about our ideas about post-humanism or transhumanism. We're actually shaped by our actions. We're shaped by how we use our bodies. That feeds back into our hearts and our brains, and it teaches us how to live. And he thinks most of us in the modern West have already embraced post-human habits and technologies. They are already embedded in our lives so that when we're faced with a challenge, our answer is technology. And we want to put off death and suffering and aging, and we turn to technology rather than to God. He says most of us have already embraced technology that's become an extension of our bodies and brains. We're already part machine through the things we hold in our hands, the idols we turn to when we're having those idle moments that shape our brains to make us just a little bit post-human. We give all this information already that helps the machine give us more targeted ads that know how we're feeling because of how we're acting. We're already there. Burdett often writes with a lady named Victoria Lorimer. She's a theologian here in Brisbane at the Uniting Church College. And she points out how machines, they're different to us. They're not great at feeling their way into stories. Uh, they're good at processing facts, but they struggle with narratives. And she reckons this is because they don't have bodies that feel things and respond and get caught up in a story. Uh, inhabiting stories is a way to push back at becoming robotic. She says this is true for what we believe about being human, what we believe about what our bodies are for and where we think God fits in the process. Our beliefs, our religious beliefs, are actually a product of our bodily experiences too. And so if we want to push back against this post-human thing, we need to embrace religious practices that reinforce a different belief about what it means to be human. We need to cultivate practices that incarnate us, make us more flesh, where our technology might want to disincarnate us, pull us away from our bodies, practices that connect us to a story so we're not robots. And Burdett, well, he reckons communion, we're going to do together in a moment, is one of the best practices to teach us about our bodies. It's a practice that's a counter-practice to disembodied and autonomous post-human performance a practice that pushes back against Gnosticism in all its forms because it teaches us the body matters. It reminds us that Jesus took on a body, a body he still has and will have for eternity. It's a reminder that that body was given for us as a gift at the heart of the gospel. He says it's this practice that teaches us, to be, teaches us not to be disembodied because it unites us in a gathered community of bodies in real space, not in virtual spaces, but in relationships where we share from the one table, where we gather in the flesh as the body of Christ and where we're invited 
in 1 Corinthians to discern the body of Christ, not just in what we eat and drink, but in the room. We are the body of Christ. As we remember being recreated by his body being given for us, we're invited to think about our vocation of giving our bodies to God. We receive in order to give. Give to one another as the body of Christ, as he spells it out in 1 Corinthians, and to give ourselves to the world as a living sacrifice, giving a valuable gift because our bodies, like the bodies of Je- like the body of Jesus, our bodies are profoundly valuable. See, one of the ways communion works is that we do it in an embodied way. We eat and we drink. We take on the bread as the body of Jesus and we remember that he has become part of us and we him in communion and we remember the gospel that it sustains our soul as we eat and drink and maybe this is why we should do it as a meal it sustains our body at the same time communion holds us together body and soul individual and community in the life of jesus as we declare that he is our hope let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the word who made the world took on flesh. That Jesus became human in a body that was born into a a world that is physical. And that he lived and taught us what it looks like to love and serve you. And then he laid down his body for us. Only for you to raise it to new life. We thank you for your spirit who unites us to you and unites us to Jesus so that his death and resurrection and his resurrection body are a template for us. And so we pray as we consider what it means to be truly human in this world, to take our bodies as a gift from you to be brought into this story, that you would help us be wise and discern the ways that the world is trying to pull us apart, but also that we might discern the ways that you are putting us back together by your spirit, through our giving of ourselves in worship to you. And so we pray as we do this now, as we share in communion, that you might be reminding us of these big truths and helping us to face a world in bodies that are dying, and aging, and that aren't what we would like them to be, so that we might live our hope with patience in ways that testify to your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.